0: We pray that your spirit take the ancient text and make it come alive even in this day in each of us according to our need through Christ. Amen. Well, we were all raised with the saying, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and who? Jacob. Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I never realized what a radical claim this formula is. It's quite radical. We know, of course, Abraham is the founder, the father. He's sort of the Henry Ford of Judaism. He's the innovator, the originator. Isaac comes along, and he's like Henry Ford's son, Edsel. A little more quiet, a little less risk-taking. But then comes Jacob. Jacob is... In the parlance of our day, a scumbag he's a snake in the grass. he's a good-for-nothing, low life, he's a con man, he's a liar, he's a sl- he's a hot mess. Number two of the twins, in an era of uh, primogeniture, where the number one child receives the blessing and all of the the uh inheritance of the father, or most of it. He determines that he will become number one by hook or crook, by stealth, by extortion, even by identity theft. We read about it from the very beginning. Even before the children are born, these twin brothers are born, we hear Rachel wanting to die because the brothers are struggling within the womb. And on the day of their delivery, we read that Esau is born first, but Jacob comes immediately behind, holding onto the heel of his brother as if to sort of pull him back and get ahead first. We know the story of how when Esau was starving for food, having been out hunting in the forest, and Jacob, a mama's boy, was in the house cooking, and Esau came in, that Jacob basically extorted the birthright from his brother in exchange for a bowl of porridge. Esau never forgot. And then this story. As they're older, as Isaac's about to die and leave his blessing, Jacob comes along and steals the blessing right out from underneath he saw his feet, and then, as they meet, the two brothers finally, after years, decades have passed, are going to finally see each other for the first time. We see Jacob sniveling and bringing his family along to butter up his brother and perhaps to save his neck. What is with this guy? I mean, this guy could keep a psychiatrist in, in business for an entire career. He's just he's, He is an egocentric, competitive, insecure guy with a mama complex and sibling rivalry all rolled into one big mess. As Walter Brueggemann says, the purposes of God are tangled up in a web of self-interest and self-seeking. Which becomes a problem for people like us. We who like everything decent and in order, we like all the numbers and the columns to add up. We like for faith to make sense. And so we've got to do something with the story. Why Jacob? Why Jacob? Well, the usual way of answering a question like this that's hard in church is to say God moves in What? Mysterious ways, God moves. Me. You know, our ways aren't God's ways. If it seems wacky, just blame God. You know, if it seems capricious, unfair, unwise, unethical, well, as my kids like to say, "Nunya," as in "None business." It's none of your business. As my sister's boyfriend, who's from Slovakia, would say, "You don't know. I know." God would say, "You don't know. I know." God moves in mysterious ways. Uh, People who are more sophisticated try to put it into a formula, a formulation. Uh, It's called Calvinism. Where certain things are predetermined, predestined. It may seem messy and and unorganized to us, but it's all part of a plan. God chooses some, which of course raises the question if God chose Jacob, that would mean God did not choose Esau. Why not? Firstborn? Seems like a decent guy. Why not Esau? I mean, was it his red hair? Some of you have red hair in this room. Uh, you've heard the, the saying about red-headed stepchildren, you know, maybe God just looked down and went, I just don't like you. Does that sound like God? That doesn't seem right. None of this would matter, of course, except for the fact that for some unexplainable reason, God is with Jacob. God's with Jacob. The first time uh, Jacob, uh, or the second time Jacob uh, cheats his brother, he flees for his life. He goes out into the wilderness, and the first night there, he has to use a rock for his pillow, it says, which may give us some indication that he was a hard-headed guy, but he, he has this dream while he sleeps on this rock. And the dream is beautiful. It's of this ladder and angels ascending and descending as if to say heaven and earth are, are close. And there's this vision of unity and it's so beautiful. Jacob is the one who has this dream. And then on the, on the night before they're to meet, after all those decades have passed, Jacob goes out again into the wilderness alone. And this time, the text says, he wrestled all night with a man, which we realize is an angel of the Lord. And the angel finally says, let go. And Jacob says, I won't let you go until you bless me. I don't know what it was with him and blessings, but he was collecting them or something. But I want you to bless me. And the blessing comes in two forms. The angel touches his hip and sets it out of place so that he walks with a limp. But the other blessing is this. He changes his name. As if to say, you can start over. You can be reoriented. You have been named Jacob, but from now on, you will be Israel. And then... In that moment when he meets his brother, this brother he's betrayed and bested, and the brother comes in peace so that Jacob is able to look in the face of his brother and say, to look in your face is to see the face of God. God was with Jacob. This low-life con man liar, God was with him. This story, it seems to me, is first and chiefly a story about grace, gift. You can call it unmerited grace, but that's really redundant. All grace is unmerited, undeserved. It's grace. His life is grace and gift. And that primal realization that he's loved, that God is with him, it alters everything about his self-understanding and about how he relates to brother, how he relates to world, how he relates to children and grandchildren. It is game-changing grace when we realize that we don't have to compete or connive or, or confound or crush our opponent. It is, at that moment, grace, game-changing grace. Grace. And I wonder if you can hear it today. The invitation to not live in fear or self-doubt or self-hatred changes everything. In fact, I would suggest to you, that's what it means to be saved. Your Savior wants to be, be saved today, we just say. What's it mean to be saved For too long, we've limited the notion of being saved to this transaction that happens by Jesus in order to get God out of a bind, this perfect God who wants to love us but can't love us. And if you just believe it, then you'll go to heaven. But to be saved... To be saved is to discover that despite our track record, despite who we are and what we've done, we get this undeserved and unearned love that is not only the last word about us, it's the first word about us. That it's the firm foundation on which our lives can be built. That you are loved and and treasured. By one, even if you're Jacob, you're treasured and loved for who you are. To say it even more boldly, there is divinity and sacredness inside every one of us. The Word of God, says Paul, is not far away that you have to go find it. It's right here. It's on your lips. It's in you. To come to this realization is to find the happiness and peace that I think we're all looking for, even though we forget it all the time. It's right here. We're like the man in the image, riding on an ox, looking for an ox. Riding on an ox, looking everywhere for an ox who's right beneath him. The foundation upon which we stand is this grace that we're always fighting with our brothers, fighting with our sisters to try to obtain. Because you see, there's not just one blessing. We're all firstborn children. We're all equally loved and valued as children of God. And once we see this, it redefines everything. How we read the Bible, how we look in the mirror, how we look at our friends, how we look at our enemies. We're saved. Richard Rohr says we need to be saved from ourselves, from our egos and the systems of this culture that have been created to renounce and defy this notion of grace. That we're all loved, we're all equal, we're all valuable. When we live in a world that causes us to forget this, everything goes awry. Francis of Assisi said, you are who you are in the eyes of God, no more and no less. You are who you are in the eyes of God. It's what Rohr calls a beautiful, beautiful morality that, that evolves from this realization. Because we do things not in order to win, not in order to be right, not in order to be good, but we do it from the right energy and spirit because we want to love we live out of what feels to me like a gracious center this grace when it's realized changes us or or it's not grace it changes us which is why Jacob's name changes to Israel but what about Esau What about the firstborn who was passed over? What about this one for whom life is not fair? Uh, We name the reality that Esau is not part of our lineage, not part of our direct story. We worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. But grace was with Esau too. He has a life. He has a story. And it's a beautiful story. It's a gracious, centered story. What else can you say about a man who is able to forgive his brother what was done to him and approach him in such a way that the brother would say, to look in your face is to see the face of God. There's grace for Esau. And I know I'm in danger here of sounding like just church talk, church drivel. Sort of like Jim and Tammy Faye Baker when they go, God loves you. But I want to say it's true for every one of you. And as we come to this table, I hope you'll hear it and feel it in the touch and the taste of the bread and the cup that there's grace. I know I sound like Oprah, but there, there's grace for you and grace for you. Everybody gets grace. This isn't a new understanding. But an old understanding that takes deep and rich meaning. If you'll receive it today. Let's pray. We prayed earlier about forgiveness for those times when we confess with our lips but do not believe in our hearts. This day, gathered in this space, may we so deeply believe in our hearts that we're transformed by love. Through Christ the Lord, we pray. Amen. This morning, we're invited to the table of love set by God for you and me. Not because we're good enough or worthy enough, but because it is the table of grace. If you feel hungry for God, you are welcome at this table. Let us now prepare to come to this table as we stand together and exchange the peace that Jesus Christ brings to us. Saying, may the peace of Christ be with you and also with you.